Welcome everyone to another episode of Where's This Going? Again, before we get into it, I want to please remind you to take a second to go to my YouTube channel. You can find by searching my name, Felix Levine, on YouTube and hit that subscribe button. There you'll find every episode in its full video versions as well as smaller clips and highlights from those episodes. And also, if you haven't done so, please go to Instagram and follow me at Felix.Levine to stay updated on new episodes and everything related as it comes out. Also, if you're listening to this right now, please just take a quick second to go rate and review this five stars on Apple's podcast app. That would be a massive help. And my next guest, he is a formerly incarcerated actor who appeared on A Bronx Tale, as well as The Sopranos and a lot of other successful shows. Please welcome Lilo Brancato Jr. And we're live. Lilo Brancato, thank you uh, thank you so much for coming in the studio today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, bro. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. So I told you a few seconds ago, um, if there's a little, maybe a little tidbit, a little story, a little something that the world doesn't know about you. I know you've done a ton of interviews over, over your life. Um, well, I don't think the world knows my, my nickname. What's your nickname? It's Lilucho. 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 And who calls you that? My very, you know, uh, childhood friends, dear friends, uh, a lot of my relatives, my mom, you know, Lilucho. But then, you know, it's like, uh, that, well, because my father was Lilo as well. So I guess Lilucho is like when you say Ito in Spanish, right. it's like little Carlos, it's Carlito. Right. So I guess it was just a, a way of saying little Lilo. Now, I want to, so speaking of your childhood, I think, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of your interviews the past couple of days. Um, and I want to go more in maybe a chronological sense of... You had an interesting childhood. You were adopted. Um, and so at what age were you adopted? Um, I came here when I was four months old. Okay. January 1st, 1977 was my first day here. And I was born August 30th, 1976. And I heard that you, so you never actually met your biological parents. No. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And there was never any desire to? Um, no. I mean, um, I mean, the only thing that I would want to know if there was maybe anything I'm predisposed to or genetically, right. you know, cancer or maybe a certain type of, uh, you know, a certain illness that I can maybe protect myself from and take certain precautions and certain, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the only reason why, but as far as maybe longing for something that I, I missed out on or, or, or didn't have as a kid, I, that never was that an issue. I mean, my parents, you know, old school Italian, they, they my dad, you know, passed away a couple of years ago, rest in peace. But he was, you know, a Sicilian immigrant. He built homes and worked really, really hard. And uh, we, we had everything we needed and wanted and more as kids. Uh, we were blessed to grow up in a you know, great, great neighborhood. There was kids everywhere. So, uh, you know, I had a great childhood. I really did. Do you think you'll ever try to um, piece together who your biological parents are at some point down the line? Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, if it was right now, I don't know if I would do that. Mm. Because right now, I've sort of created like a, I don't want, a pretty well-oiled machine in the way I operate and things are going well for me. Mm -hmm. And I have a system, my life is like one big system and the structure that I incorporated in my life that I learned in prison. Right. Um, 
I have something that's working right now. And thank God, because he gives me the strength to stay on the right path necessary to implement these things in my life and to live and to be successful. So, you know, doing something like that where you go, you know, and search for your parents, you never know what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. And you may be so disappointed and all that system and everything you put in place. Now, it's, you can't even think about those things anymore. All you can think about is, wow, wow. I mean, also, just to think, so you're 44, correct? 44, yes. I mean, just the, the life that you've had, right, and you're, only, you're still so young um, is, is pretty remarkable. And obviously, we're going to go down uh, the list and, and talk about all these different things. But I think also I'm curious, um, so as a kid, what were you like? Were you, uh, I mean, were there any struggles or, um, you know, what was a young Lilo Brancato like? Um, I was always a class clown, always needed attention, always trying to make people laugh. Uh, I did a lot of impersonations, <clears throat> mostly of people that we knew. So like my uncles would be like, oh, do that guy, do that guy. You know what I mean? Another older guy, and like my friend's father, and I did some good impersonations, but I was bad in school. I used to fight, and uh, I was, like I said, a class clown, and I was getting thrown out of schools. But I was always a good student. I always did well. I was always an honorable student. Always made that a priority to get good grades. And that's what I'm there for. You know, so you might as well get something out of it. Um, but yeah, you know, I got thrown out of a few schools. And my life really didn't have direction. But there was no drugs or anything like that yet. Right. Um, I was in 10th grade and I went to like three schools that year because I was thrown out of Sacred Heart in September. They didn't want me back. What was, what was the reason? Well, it was an accumulation of things. They had just put me on probation that year. They didn't even want me back for 10th grade. My, my parents like had to beg them, please, because it was right near us. It was very convenient right, right. to go there. And uh, Brother Holton and uh, Miss Flynn, they said, okay. And they, you know, I, I went back. I got thrown out September 26th. So like I didn't even last a month. And they had my best friend in all the same classes, my friend Paul Agostino, I'm Brancato. So alphabetically, we used to sit right next to each other. And we got in so much trouble. Because he wasn't, because in tenth, in ninth grade, we weren't in the same classes. Now it's like you look at it and I'm like, oh my God, this guy's in this class. So it was like just a recipe for disaster. And we even make it to October. I got thrown out September 26th. Um, that, that particular incident was because on the street, my friend got jumped by these kids who was friends with this one kid. I was a sophomore, this kid was a senior. So I went up to him in the cafeteria and I'm like, hey, what's up, man? I heard your friend had a problem with my friend. So we started to, you know, talking like that. My friend Paulie, uh, you know, he had my back. So we were in the cafeteria. And next and these were seniors, they were bigger kids. And this one guy, Joe, real big guy, I remember he swung at us and, and uh, he missed and he hit Brother Richard in the cafeteria, so it was a disaster. <laughs> And I got th I got yeah. th I got thrown out. <laughs> I got thrown out that day, and uh, and you know then I, I missed a month, and I went to another school, and then I got thrown out of there because I wasn't I wasn't I was using a fake address. So my parents didn't want to send me to Yonkers Public Schools; they were bad. Right. So they said maybe we'll send you a little further, a half hour away with my cousin at a house. And I know it's illegal, but my parents just want the best right. for me. That's you know what I mean. Right. Believe me, they knew it was illegal, and they were afraid to do it. So my parents would buy the book. You know what I mean? They're like you know old school. But they knew it was, you know, mm -hmm. the greater good, and this guy's gonna get a better education right, right. there. But uh, and then you know, three schools. Then summer came, but I did work at a law office. Uh, my friend Corey Rabin, he's like my mentor. Um, you know, my father, like I said, built homes. Corey was the lawyer who did the closings. 
We were very close to his family. His father's a judge. The Rabins, very good people. He's one of my best friends and my mentor. And he's in recovery as well. He's in his 60s. And uh, this guy's made a very big difference in my life. And I used to work for him. I was getting 9.50 an hour in 1992. Wow. You know yeah. what I mean? Off the, you know, 9.50 yeah. an hour. That's a lot of money back <laughs> no, then. No. And uh, so that's what I did. I filed and I answered phones. And then uh, July 5th, 1992, I was on Jones Beach. And we had heard about a film called The Bronx Tale. And it was like a, a big thing in the neighborhood and in the five boroughs. So you hadn't acted previous? Never. You didn't even think of it? Never even thought of it. Wow. So we were, you know, like I would hear about the Bronx Tale, like on the radio, Robert De Niro making his directorial, looking for kids, blah, 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 and went through the whole thing. And it was like just hearing that, it's just so like intimidating that I would never go read. You know what I mean? Right. But I knew, like I looked, I, everyone tells me I look like the guy. Maybe I could be good, but nah. You know, like I, such a long shot. So I never really put much thought. My cousin went to read. A few of my friends went to read. But you hear so many stories. Oh, this guy got the park. This guy got the, you know. And that's just where we live. So in like the five boroughs, there's probably like, 300 kids that said they got the part. So, July 5th, 1992. Day before, we're lighting off fireworks. We decided we'll go to the beach. And we were there that day. My brother calls me out of the water because the guy was handing out flyers. His name's Marco Greco. He was a scout. And he was like, you know, it's been a problem. My brother's like, oh, hold on. I'll get my brother. He looks just like him. So he got me out of the water. I met the guy. He automatically, you know, saw the resemblance. He's seen it. Wow, this kid does look like his son. So he's like, have you ever acted? I said, no. I said, but I watch a lot of De Niro movies. So I started doing the faces and all. He's like, oh, this guy. That was a Sunday. He, was, he said, we're usually closed. I want you to come in. Come in tonight. And I remember my friends brought me down there. Went home from the beach. Took a shower. Got ready. I was nervous. <clears throat> my friends took me down to the Bronx, the actual neighborhood where the film took place. Okay. They had a, a, that's called like the Fordham, Belmont section of the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they had their own, like, uh, you know, the Fordham section of the Bronx, it's like they had their own little playhouse. It was called the Fordham, the Belmont Playhouse. Okay. They used to do, like, you know, little uh, plays and, you know. So this, I didn't know that, but I heard about all this after. So I went down. The guy Marco was there. I'm in the playhouse, and he gives me a scene, the one with the shaving. But it, originally, De Niro was shaving, and I go up to him and say, hey, Dad, let me ask you a question. So... He said, learn the lines, and I'll come back, and we'll do it. And, uh, we, you know, I learned them, and it just was something I was able to do. Like, I just knew how to do it. I Just everything made sense. All right, interior, night, bathroom. Calogero walks to the, Lorenzo as he's shaving. Blah, blah. Yeah. Hey, Dad, let me ask you a question about some. You know Joey Bama from down the block? Yeah. Yeah, well, he asked me. And it was just like, this is easy. I could do this. This is like... Why, people find this hard? I'm thinking in my mind, you know? But you don't know that this, like, not everyone can do this. Mm -hmm. But then there's something else that he does that not everyone can do. You know what I mean? Everybody's got, a, a, you know, a talent. So, so did you know exactly on the spot this was where, where your life was headed? You were going to be an actor? Right there when I did that? Yeah. No, no, not yet. Uh, because I didn't know what I was up against. Right. I don't know this world. You know what I mean? Right. I don't even know if I really did a good job. I know I knew what to do. But I'm saying there's probably kids out there in my mind. I'm thinking okay. there's probably kids out there great, the next De Niro, you know? So this was the VHS tape days. This is 1992. So he puts me on tape. He says, call me. We exchange numbers. Call me in a few days. I'll tell you how you did. They called me the next day from De Niro's office. They said they saw the tape. They want me to come down. So now I got to call my boss, Corey, and said, hey, listen, 
I'm not going to be able to make it. Remember that De Niro movie? I got a call back and I, oh, that's great. I said, but I got my cousin Pat. Uh, you know, I'll have him come because Pat's a judge now. Pat went there and then he took over that job. You know what I mean? So then because of that, being around Corey, and Corey's such a great influence, such yeah. a great guy, Pat became a lawyer. Mm. He just on election day, just he's the judge where he is now. So, you know, it's everything, you know what I mean? So, uh, and we still see Corey, we go out, you know, and these guys like, because I'm single, these guys are not. So they live vicariously yeah. through me about certain things. You know what I mean? They get all excited. Exactly. Yeah. So, we could talk about off camera. Yeah. yeah. So um, Pat went in, and then I just kept getting called back. And the first day, was like a million kids in there. Kids in the corner, like reading the lines. Hey, you know, like doing like real actors. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And then I just kept going and going and going. And as I was getting called back, there was less and less people. Right. And... Uh, It was common sense. Like, I must be doing a good job because it's still me. And then, you know, and then it was just me. How many callbacks are there? Uh, at that point, it was maybe three weeks. Wow. Every day. Every day. So then they finally said, we're going to go upstairs and meet Bob. I didn't know it was Robert De Niro. Yeah. I said, Bob. And he has back to me. I turned around. I saw him. Oh, wow. And then I knew it was real. And then we started working together. And I was reading like a million different girls for the part. Uh, you know, everything. And, uh, Then one day, Robert De Niro said, I want you to put on dress clothes like you're going to church. We're going to do a screen test. We're going to put you on film. And then that's when I knew the kid from who shot Sonny, he was the other person who was going to be C. It was me versus him. I didn't know that. I thought I had the part because I was going down there for like two weeks straight. I'm the only guy there. I mean, it's where they hiding the other guy under the couch, right? You know, right, something right, like right. it's common sense. I see everybody. I see multiple guys coming for that role and that role, but I'm the only guy coming here. So it's you know. Mm. And then when this guy comes and we're in the screening room, everybody, all everybody's being screen tested. All the finalists that day, so the whole room was packed, and I'm sitting there with my father. And this guy comes up behind me. He's like, "Hey, hey, dude, buddy, he goes, I'm Phil Garbarino. I'm reading for C." So I'm like, "Oh boy." Cause you got another. Like, he didn't make it to this. He's got to be good. He did right. something, you know, to, right. to deserve to be where he is today. So I don't know what I'm up against. Yeah, I look like the Nero, but so what? He could look like the mother. He could still look like <laughs> their son. You know what I yeah. mean? So now I was like, oof, that that changed everything. So, um, I mean, the, the 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 anxiety, the stress. Now it's like ten times worse. But uh, they did all the other part. You know, all the other characters, and then it was just me versus him. It's me versus him. And he would go in, I would go in, he would go, and then it was the scene when Chaz smacks him around, and uh, he went first. They beat him to a pulp, literally. They, they really, so I'm thinking, I'm going to go in and get the same thing. He comes out, his shirt was ripped, he got handprints, and my father looked at me like, what are you doing? Like, like, what is this shit? You know what I mean? Like, we didn't know this was going to happen. So now I went in, and they and I did the scene, you know, when chat when Sonny said you put it, you, mm -hmm. put, you go in my car. So now, I do the scene. They never hit me once. They never hit me once. So I was like, wow. I was like almost afraid to go in the room. So that was Thursday, Friday. I didn't hear from anybody. They called me Sunday and said Bob would like to see you. So that Monday was the day he told me. So you know, how's he say it to you? Well. You didn't know what he he could have went either way. It was very ambiguous. 
Because, you know, he makes a lot of facial expressions and, well, we like what you did, but Phil's got a little more experience and, you know, we think with the money that we're spending and it's a big movie, we just think a 21-year-old is more suited for this responsibility. Could put it in a nice way and that would have been it. But he said, uh, he said we liked everything that you did and uh, and it still could have went. We liked everything that you did. You got a, you got, but. You know, you got a shot in this business, but not on the Bronx tail. Maybe on the next one. But, uh, and then he told me, he got the part. I was like, wow. Came, went out. I talked to my, you know, my father. Was was at the time Robert, like, De Niro, in your eyes, like a godlike figure? Oh, absolutely. It's my, uh, it was my childhood, uh, you know, it's my idol. I mean, I watched all those. When he did Cape Fear, I grew my hair out because of the character. I just wanted Go for it, go for it, go yeah, for it. I'm take sorry. It, take it, take it. We'll, we'll just cut it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this was like a dream come true. I used to, like, put fake tattoos on me, grow my hair, like Cape Fear, and I, you know, like, because somebody told me when I was working at a florist as a kid, I had an Atlanta Braves hat on, and it was Christmas time, and I was putting the Christmas wreaths outside, on display, so I got my head down, put him down, and the guy says, hey, he asked me a question, I looked up, he goes, oh my God, he goes, you ever tell you you look like Robert De Niro? I heard the name, but I didn't really know who right. he was. So then we started, then my father was like, yeah, you know, he's like, I got a summer movie with Robert De Niro. So he showed me, I was like, oh, this guy? And I was like, yeah. So now I became like obsessed, I'm watching all the movies, studying the acting and, you know, the characters, and uh, so this was like a dream come true. It was like, you know, too good to be true. Now, so you're at the time, what, 15, 16 when you get it? 15, 15 years old when they found me. When they gave me the part, I was 15. But when we actually started shooting the film, I was 16. Okay. Because August 30th is my birthday. I turned 16. They found me July 5th. Okay. So I had the part right before my birthday. Because I remember August 31st was the first day they shot the movie. Oh, that was princi- okay. the first day of principal photography. You know, like, and I watched that movie, The Bronx Tale, and for many years I couldn't watch it and analyze it for the quality and what it is, but it's such a great movie. Mm-hmm. You watch it after so many years, and, uh, you know, just so much goes into it, but, like, you know, I watched that scene again the other day when, when, the, when Sonny kills that guy in the street. That scene was so awesome. Just the way he was shot, and the kid, and back to Sonny, and Chaz, just the way he looked at him, and then he put his head down. He did it perfect. If he would have did it for one second more, it would have been too much. Like, just the way he mm. did it, it was perfect. Like, I'm just watching him, I'm hanging on, and he did it, and he did it perfect. He dropped you right at the right yeah. time. And another thing, too, like, you know, the squibs, when they pop, when you boom, boom, you're getting shot. And I just spoke to the guy who was breaking the window. We could, Joe Black is his name. Right. Uh, I just spoke to him the other day. He's doing well. Uh, he's a good guy. And uh, he was so perfect, and nobody knew that was Pesci. Right. And then they hide it to the end. It's like, wow, that was friggin' you. And when he goes, fuck you, you freehole. But when he said that, that word is a real Bronx word, right. freehole. When he said, fuck you, you free-. And now you go watch him, because when you know it's him, then you go back and watch it, and then you're like, oh, yeah, that is him. Mm. You'll never see that mm-hmm. in the beginning. But if you remember, when Chaz shoots him, the first squib that pops, what I thought was so awesome, is right here. Because mm. when he's like this with the bat, boom, that first one popped out of his arm. I was like, yo, that was so good. That was so right. good. The way it was shot. 
And then he comes, he shoots him right in the head. He goes, get this car out of here. But that was perfect. That was a beautiful scene. Just everything about that film. Robert De Niro paid, paid attention to detail. Yeah. That's why that film was so great. He paid attention to every little detail. There were films I was on. I'm not going to say any names. There were films on. I used to have a different haircut every day. Nobody said anything. I was like, all right. Like, you don't know that this, like, this is way different than it was yesterday. If you're okay with it, I'm okay with it too. You know, but De Niro would cut uh, just the tie if it's out of place. Your hair. I mean, every little detail. These, I'm just giving it from the biggest details right. to the littlest details. And that's why the film was the way it was. And I learned a lot. You know, I produced the film myself. Uh, I also work for, uh, I also work for a, a drug rehab, director of public relations. And one of my obligations is to do right. a one-minute movie for them having to do with addiction. So I conceptualize, I direct. And, uh, you know, there's a lot, you know, and I'm big on the detail too. And that's a lot that I want to get into after, but I'm just wondering right now. So when it comes out, you're about 16 then? 16. No, the film came out, I was 17. 17 it came out in the out. fall of, of uh, 93. Savoy Pictures. Okay. So then... At that point, you're 17 and people recognize you, I'd imagine. They know you. I mean, you're top of the world, no? Especially for a 17-year-old. They probably can't get any better than that. Um, I mean, yeah, it was it was yeah. definitely life-changing. I mean... I mean, w w would you get noticed, you know, on the street? Would oh, people yeah. come up to you? And yeah, yeah. It was like the full celebrity kind of experience. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. Did you... Is that something that you really enjoyed? Is that something that was scary to you at the time? Well, the attention comes in all different forms. Right. So some of it you enjoy and some of it you don't. You get people that are just jealous and they want to start calling you. Right. And they, hey, you jerk off. You know, yeah. like, for what? Because mm. <laughs> I was in a, like, I don't understand this, you know? But then you got people that love you and admire you. And, you know, I mean, and that's a beautiful thing. That to have some complete stranger come up to you and tell you, you know, I love you and I admire your work. That's, that's special. Did you feel invincible? Yeah, to a certain extent I did. Because it just happened when I was like that age. It almost felt like this is what's supposed to happen. Right. From Bronx Tale to Renaissance Man to Crimson Tide. These are three studio films for a guy who's never done anything like this, has no experience, and is getting thrown in these situations. Without the experience, that's, that's the most dangerous. That's dangerous. And do you think that the, the drugs and all of that that we'll talk about after... Um, that would have happened if you hadn't had this life at a such a young age and this attention at such a young age? Maybe at not such a young age, but it would have happened because it's my personality. Okay. It's my personality, you know? And you first dabbled, I believe, at 15 is, is what I heard in previous interviews? No, 16 years old. 16, okay. Yeah, it was like November of two, uh, 1992 um, is when I first smoked marijuana. Okay. And at that point... Did you realize, like, oh, this is something I'll do a couple more times? Did you think that you were at risk? Did you, I mean... I didn't think anything. I just thought I was curious. Right. You know, I heard about it. Yes. So let's do it. Okay. I heard it was relatively harmless. You know what I mean? Um, I had an uncle that did it, and it was no big deal. He didn't, his life was fine, you know? Right. He wasn't some, like, you know... Um, so I was curious, and I tried it. And then, so where did it, you know, where did it go from there? Well, it went from that, you know, that every day. Um, then I was going out on the weekends and started going out during the week, drinking alcohol, you know, every time I'm out excessively because that was my personality once again. And it still is. It still is. Um, 
but do you think it's the personality and then amplified by the fact that it, you know, you have people coming up to you right. and, no, and no. here, have this and this right. and this. Absolutely. Right. right. In addition to that, yes. And that's definitely an aggravating, it right. aggravates this whole, and it speeds it up. I, maybe in my early 20s, maybe I would have started. But with this, when you're at parties in the hills and there's cocaine everywhere, you know, beautiful women, and you see people that like, you know, own the house. It's like a $5 million house. They're doing it. Yeah. Like, it may not be that. Look at the house this guy has. He's, he's yeah. had to have done something to put this together you know so this is the these are the kind of things that you know i i saw early on but like with anything else you never think it's going to happen to you right um so i just kept going and then you know i was introduced to the cocaine loved it then i said wow you know maybe if i do this when i go out because it was like made me feel like so good and like sentimental i love you man and like this would be the key and you think it's just as simple as that. and But you know, like cocaine is like referred to as the devil. And when the devil caresses you, he wants your soul. And that's what he's doing in the beginning. So you think it's going to be like this all the time. But the more you do it, the less you feel as good as you did that first time. And you feel little flashes of it, but it gets more diluted every time. And then it kicks into the whole psychosis part of it. The paranoia, the delusional behavior, people in the wall and you know, like, you know what I mean? Right. Then it goes to that because you abuse it. So you were, but so for the most part, growing up, you were. I mean, you had your head on straight. You know, like little much. school things here and there. But you were. But you, I was a good student. You were a good student. You I was had, focused. I was an athlete. You were motivated. You know? Right. And then okay, so you were never. I mean, there was never any signs to maybe an outside person looking in that oh, Lilo might be at risk of falling into an addictive pattern, right? Not at that point. There were no signs of anything and. You know, growing up where I did in the neighborhood, it was all old school Italians, not Italian Americans, like the immigrant types. Yeah. And that all, they all had kids. So that drug stuff would, did not go on because these old school parents, first of all, they for, you know, it was forbidden. Right, right. And, but it just wasn't around. Right. So there's no experience. You don't know anybody that's doing it. So when it does present itself, you don't, you don't know what to do. And that's why sometimes I see, you know, I see the way people baby their kids and, I know you want to protect your kids and I know you love them and I know you want what's best for them. But sometimes you got to let them go a little bit and you got to let them see certain things because you know what? Life is not always peach. You know, life mm -hmm. is not always good. You know, it's, you never know what's coming. Right. And, you know, a, a smooth water is never made a skilled sailor. Sometimes you have to experience turbulent waters. That only makes you better. You know, like a lot of people like, you know, of course, prison, the word, the stigma behind, you know, it's an ugly word. And, you know, I... I mean, not at the expense of, you know, the, the, the heroic police officer who lost his life. But I'm saying prison for me was like, it was, I wouldn't be where I am today had I not been there. And people want to like, prison can be a good place. It can be a place where God takes mercy on you mm -hmm. and says, go here for a while. But you have to see it that way. You have to recognize it as that being a sign and a sign in that way. Because not only everybody does. Some people look at it like, I could go meet new people here, become a better criminal, and when I come home, I won't get caught like I did this time. It's a whole different mentalities, but that's the way I saw it. And, you know, I, I owe a lot of the way I am today. I'm so focused, so disciplined, and so structured because of prison. It's like there's no, you're going to cry, you think you're going to go home? You're not going home. you got to tough it out. And then it comes to a point where what bothered you doesn't bother you anymore. 
And you just see as time goes on, like, wow. Like, when I first went there, I was like a kid, grew up, you know, I was a spoiled brat. My parents gave me everything. You know, had the best of everything, the best birthday parties, the best communion. You know, they spent so much money and, like, you know. And then, to make matters worse, then I'm, like, in these movies. So it's yeah. like, who's going to tell me anything? Yeah. You know, I'm making all this money as a kid. And, you know, did I they mean. Ever, did they ever find, not to interrupt you, did they no, ever find no. out... Uh, or could tell about the drugs that started to, to it was so it was right when you're about 16 17 you start dabbling and then it it kind of just progresses from there yeah yeah and and they to hallucinogens like mushrooms and how old are you when you started 17 18 oh, okay. mescaline and did they have any idea uh yeah they did my parents knew i was smoking a little weed and stuff like that and to them that's like heroin right these old school italians yeah. they, you know that's very bad um, I don't think marijuana is all that bad. I think people can use it. If uh, these days it's yeah. destigmatized. You yeah, know? it's uh, I think it's uh, very. It, it can help. It can help so many in you know dealing with addiction. Right. It's uh, you know. I mean, from so many years, the way it was spoken about, and it was just not legal, right. and so many people think it's so bad. But I think it has so many positive things. But you would find a way to separate career and drug use. Or no? In the beginning, I did because I still wasn't that far gone. Right. But as time went on, there's, you know, I mean, there was scene, you know, the scenes I did in The Sopranos where I was high. Right. I had read that. And, yeah. And major motion pictures, I was there high. So at the and end. Could they, they tell? Yeah. I mean, something not going to say it, but they could tell. You, could, you think you're fooling everyone, but you're not fooling. You're only fooling yourself. And was it at that point because you were already addicted or because you're like, ah, fuck it. Let's see if I could do it. Or was it you just thought you were invincible? What, no, not the invincible. I just needed it. Okay. Yeah, I had so to. So it was addictive at that point. Yeah, addictive, right. It was 100% addictive. And because I would do cocaine all night, and then it's like, I got to go to work the next day, and I'd be all, like, geeked out, my jaw going. I can't go to work like that. Right. So then I would go snort a bag of heroin just to come down from that to the point where now I'm, like, normal. But with that dope, now you're going to be throwing up every five minutes. You'd be yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, but, uh. Yeah, it was bad. So did you, but at that point, did you ever feel like, uh, this is a problem? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I knew it was a problem before that. When did you know it was a problem? I knew it was, in a, pro I knew it was a problem probably like by 1920. Okay. And I still went till 29, you know what wow. I mean? And if I hadn't got locked up, I'd probably be dead right now. Um, yeah, because like I seen like as we were getting older, like all the guys I did it with and these guys just stopped and they're like meeting girls and you know what I mean? It's just, and I'm not like I, now it's like I'm a Tuesday night. I went and got myself a gram. I'm cutting it up on my, you know, junior high school yearbook and snorting blow. And on Tuesday night, my room for absolutely no reason. That's a problem. And, but at 1920, when you realize it's a problem, are you telling yourself I want help? What do you, or is it just like, ah, we'll see where this goes. Exactly. Right. Because you're too embarrassed and you never think it's going to happen to you. Right. All the stuff you hear about on TV, all this, it's not going to happen to you. Right. And you thought you could, you could do the, career, the acting career and be that big star while doing it and you'd be fine. Right. Right. But, you know, I was uh, very so mistaken. Then, so then, um, and I don't know how much you want, I mean, you've probably talked about it. I've, I mean, I've seen the interviews a million times with the whole jail situation and, and you know, the incident of that night. Um, but... And people can go figure that out and, and go look it up. I'm more interested in hearing your mental, psychological process of 
knowing you're going to go to prison. Um, and I mean, I can only imagine because you're also a high profile individual that when this news breaks, you just, I don't know. Did you feel like the world was crashing in on you? Did you feel like what was going on in your mind? You get arrested. What are you thinking? Well, well, we, we had both, well, all three, there was all three of us were shot. So I couldn't think of anything else, but where do you get shot by the way? I got shot once, twice, and then right here. So I couldn't think of anything other than to just survive the night because I started getting weak. I was losing a lot of blood. But in the beginning, like when they charged me with murder, I'm like, how's that happen? I didn't even have a gun. I didn't shoot anyone. I didn't know there was a gun. So like, how is this? How are you charging me with murder? You're not thinking maybe an accessory? And they're like, no, you got murder too. That's 25 to life, bro. So I'm thinking, how the hell does this happen? Then I learned about the whole felony murder thing. If you attempt to commit, you commit in furtherance or in immediate flight there from a felony causes the death of a non-participant. That's felony murder. So now I'm like, oh, wow, I'm tied into this, like, through this. And it was very scary. Very scared. They were telling you you'd be there for life. Yeah, a lot of people like, you know, oh, man, you ain't going to beat that. You ain't going to beat what, that. What are you thinking when someone's telling you spend the rest of your life in jail? I'm thinking it's going to, it's true. I think it's, it's going to happen because a lot of guys that told me have, they got experience in jail and prisons and have seen, you know, sentences handed down to guys that did this and, oh, this is a cop in New York City. You know what I mean? So I was very, very, you know, very scared of the outcome, of the possible outcome. And was it, made worse by the fact that you were this, you know, up and coming or at least very established at the point at that time actor. Um it made it worse in some regards, but it made it better That's in some. Because you know, how? you got some CEOs that, you know, love the movie and they give you a little, you know, a little half a sandwich or you know what I mean? That was cool. But then you get some that'll go out of their way to make it harder for you right. to let you know you're not making movies. This is right. something else. And I'm gonna show you that it's something else. So it could work with you or against you. And your parents and family, I mean, did you feel a sense of embarrassment? I mean, what what, were, what was their reaction and how'd they treat you through My that parents were heartbroken. Yeah. My parents were heartbroken over it. Um, you know, my relatives, uh, I mean, they all, I mean, listen, it was a sad time. It was a very sad time. Because, I mean, yes, someone died. I mean, you know, another yeah. person died. The hands of my addiction, and it's something I got to live with. I got shot. You know, the whole drug addiction thing. It was a lot. There's many, many things going on. And in the beginning, because I know, you know, we'll talk about the drug use in prison in a second. In the beginning, I imagine you weren't using right when you got in or you couldn't. I mean, I, f I feel like it was a little bit more strict then. No. When I first got to Rikers? Yeah. Uh, no. We used like right away. I was so in a how's it work? How's it work? Because, <laughs> you know, obviously it's supposed to not be like that. Well, you know, you got to understand, when I first got there, we were like, we were like in wheelchairs and, you know, we right. were all shot up. We were in a medical dorm in NIC, in Rikers Island, Rock, on Rikers Island, North Infirmary Command. So it's basically a hospital. It's an infirmary. You got the main building and then you have the annex. We went to the annex because they got medical dorms. You got a million wheelchairs in this place. Like you got bad guys in wheelchairs. God only knows what's hidden in those wheelchairs. You guys they handcuffed got, to the wheelchairs? Is it, how's that? No, 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 okay. not that, yeah. You got guys with syringes in their things. They got HIV, they got syringes in their thing. They got knives. Guys just come up to you, hit you with the needle. Now you got, you know what I mean? It's a very crazy place. So 
when we got to the medical dorms, <clears throat> it's a big dorm, like maybe 30 beds. But we were in the back where they had us locked in because we're high profile. We had our own TVs, though. They didn't even want to bring us out at first. And my co-defendant, Steve, he was going crazy. No, we get an hour wreck. So eventually they said, all right, let him out and see what happens. Because they were, like, trying to protect us. But, you know, my, you know, the guy I was with, he, was, he told the, the depth of security, he goes, what are you trying to protect us from? These guys are in wheelchairs. What are they going to do? You know? That's basically what he said. So we went out there, and uh, I got to tell you, it was pretty crazy. Because when we went out there, I was afraid. I'm not going to lie, I was afraid. So what do you see? Like, As soon as we come out, because we're in this back where there's three cells, and then they open up the other gate, the other thing, and now we come out, and I'm looking, I'm seeing old, like the whole like big warehouse full of beds. It's a dorm. And it's like, you know, and when one guy noticed us, and then like when they all saw us, they went crazy. So how many guys are in there? In this dorm, there's like 30, 40 guys. 30, 40, they see you guys, and you guys are all in wheelchairs? Yeah, and they came, when they saw us, they went crazy, like in a good way. Okay. Because we were all over the paper. Right. As far as they're concerned, right. we just killed a cop. You know, they don't like cops and that. That's like the best thing you could go to jail for. Right. It's like, you know, like you, to, you know, the guys in there, you're like a hero. So like when we go in there, and they, they, they noticed us, they, everybody went crazy. They started whistling, and you hear gunshots. And they went up to Steve, you know, because they knew he was the guy that shot. You got guys kissing his, his trigger finger. You know, it was serious. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, you know, but, you know, but it was crazy. It was like, I was like, wow. So what do you, so what are you thinking then? Are you like, I, I don't even know what one thinks. You're, you're shot. You're in a wheelchair. Yeah. I, I had a collapsed lung. I lost part of my face. Somebody died. Facing the rest of my life in prison. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm withdrawing from a 20, to, 20 bag a day heroin habit. I never shot heroin. I used to snort it because I had money. I never shot it. Guys that choose because then five, they can't afford their, you know, you know what I mean? What, what is like, would you say like the average cocaine user, how many bags a day are they using? Cocaine? Yeah. Cocaine heroin is way different. Right, cocaine. You said 20 bags of cocaine. How no, 20 bags of heroin. 20 bags of heroin. Yeah, that's just, you have, that's just a glassine envelope, one little thing. So I needed okay. like 20 bags just to be like straight. What would you say like the average heroin user uses? How many bags? It depends on if they're shooting or the snorts. Because you could accomplish shooting one bag with five so, but, bags. But is 20 bags a lot or, or? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Okay. It's two bundles. Okay. Okay. You know? So I'm coming off that. Right. I told them I didn't need methadone because I was still had some in my system. I thought, but I felt when it, when, it, when it was leaving, I was like, I was going crazy in that little cell. Wow. I was drawing. I was up all night. It was like pacing. And, you know, face. And so do you tell them that you're like, the, the doctors there that you... All your drug use or not? Yeah, they were going to give me the methadone. Then I was like, ah. And then I dealt, told them to give it to me. And then, But then in those dorms, everybody in there has drugs. Because they're in there for some kind of medical ailment or whatever. Right. So now when they say medication, there's a line from here down the block. Everybody's getting medication. He gets MS Contin, morphine sulfate, because he's in a wheelchair. He got shot. He got pain in his back. The next guy gets methadone. He's coming off this. The next guy gets Percocet. The next guy gets Xanax. The next guy gets this. The next guy gets this. So now you got so these guys. You guys can all be trading and like. Right, but they don't, a lot of these guys don't even take the drugs. It's free from the city. Wow. So they make it like they take it and then they hide Whoa. it in their wheelchair and then they sell it. That's the way it goes. So now, you know, I mean, I'm and not no going to say any figured, names, no but. No one figures this out? No, but they do. They don't care. It's just, you know what it is? I mean, I guess you let this kind of stuff go in there. It keeps things quiet. Right. I think it's, because you, know, you got to understand, CEOs, you know, it's a tough job. It's a tough job. Cops, you know, it's a tough job. I mean, it's like, and, it's like a zoo in there. Yeah. And you're there by yourself. You're man in one post. 
You don't have a gun. So you got to be really careful in the way you do things. And stuff like that. It's like, listen, if they want to get high, let them get high. Does You know? But it was, you know, so that was going on. I was able to get morphine. I was get, able to get heroin. There's a lot of gang members there. I was able to do all that. And uh, <clears throat> eventually, November 12, 2006, I snorted four bags of dope. I took 30 pill, 20 pills. I overdosed. And now we're just going to take a quick break to talk to you about my longtime sponsor in U.S. Wellness Meats. U.S. Wellness Meats has over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. All of their beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. They specialize in every single diet under the sun and have hundreds of paleo, keto, Whole30, sugar-free, and AIP-friendly options. All of their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles, so you will never have any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. They ship anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. Go to uswellnessmeats.com today and when you use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, you'll receive 15% off store-wide savings. Again, go to uswellnessmeats.com, use that promo code PODCAST, and you'll get 15% off of every single order. Go check it out today. Now let's get back into it. That was the first time you'd overdosed? Uh, no, that was not the first time. When was the first time you'd overdosed? I think it was like May of 2000. And this is when you, so you're not, no, nowhere near jail at that point? No. On your own? Yeah, I was supposed to start a film, an Abel Ferrara film called Rxmas. Okay. And it's ironic because in the film I sell heroin and the guy who's supposed to show me how to bag it up because we do it on camera. And you're like, I know and, how. <laughs> no, 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 but not even that. He was supposed to come that morning and I overdosed. Wow. So we had to tell him, listen, uh, you're not going to make it if you want to come by land. You know what I mean? So and it was like. You weren't close to dying or? No, I was, I almost did die. Because I knew I was going to do this movie. So I wanted to go out one last night. Because then when the movie, you know, then I'm going to try to stay home as much possible. Right. Stay in character and do what I'm supposed to do. Because I played a Dominican. And I wanted to, you know, speak the accent. And if I right. go do all this other stuff, right, right, right. I'm going to lose the focus that I need. Because it just makes it so much easier when you do focus. Right. It just comes so much easier. It's not like it's you're dedicated. You're doing yourself a favor. Right. It's harder when you don't, you know. So... I snorted so much cocaine, and then I needed a little heroin because I knew I was going to go home. I was going to take a little nap, and then the guy comes. He shows me how to do it because you got the bags here. There's the glassine envelopes. You grab the bag like this. You grab it. Open it like this, like that. You get the McDonald's spoons. You know the ones, the little ones like that? Yeah. You stir the coffee, those long, skinny ones with just that thing? Yeah. That's the measuring. You get the bag, open it, the bottom, and then with the bottom the bag right on the top, and you put it right in the thing. So it's a, literally a drop. It's so small. It's very powerful. Very powerful. Wow. That little drop can kill you. If you wow. th that can kill you right then and there. Once you get that drip, your heart will stop. Heroin's very serious. It's wow. not a joke. Yeah. And now, especially with all this fentanyl and all this other stuff yeah. that they're putting in it, it's very, I, I would be afraid to relapse right now. You don't know what you're sniffing. It's not even heroin anymore. You're sniffing straight fentanyl, maybe 20% heroin. So who found dangerous. you when you it's overdosed dangerous. that first time? Uh, I don't know. If, I think Are it was you my, unconscious? No, it was in my room because they, they had a. I told my mom, listen, come wake me up because I know the guy's coming. They came to wake me up. I wasn't waking up. I wasn't responsive. Um, and then whatever happened, I was out. And then 
I remember feeling something to my neck. And when I looked up, my doctor was there. Oh, wow. He had police in my room, firefighters. It was a serious thing. There was water all over my bed. They were throwing water on me, trying to wake me up. Serious. Right. Um, so yeah, that's when was my first overdose. And at that point, does anybody try to be like, hey, Lilo, like, can I help you? Like- no, yeah, everyone, but you don't want to listen. Right. You don't want to listen, you know? So, you know, that was November of... 2006. So when you, the, the second time you overdosed in jail? November 12, 2006 was the second time. And then November 18th, uh, it was a Saturday night. I sniffed four bags. So wait, before I, before we get to that, so the, the first time you overdosed in jail, what, I mean, that's not supposed to happen under no. under correction officer's watch. No, especially a high-profile right. inmate like that. Like, no what are they, what's going on here? Right, so they, it was like a big deal. They had New York City detectives, you know, it was a, Really big deal. They came, taped my cell off. It was a you know crime scene, and uh, they wanted me to tell. I never did. They gave me eighty days in the box for dirty urine. They did confirm it by giving me a urinalysis. Happened so- Saturday, Monday. They gave me the urinalysis. Sure enough, I was dirty, so I went to the box. And right when I got to the box, my cousin Pat, and my friend Corey, because Pat was an attorney right, and right. Corey's an older gentleman, he's an attorney, so they came to see me on an attorney visit. So. They were very disappointed. And these are, I love these guys. Hey, we play around. They weren't playing around. They're like, dude, somebody's dead. You're doing all this time. And people are here for you. We love you. We want to see you through this. But you, you're doing this. You're not going to have anybody. For some reason, it just clicked that day. And that November 18th, that Saturday when I did it, because I, I went to the box November 24th. Because you never know when you're going. They just tell you your number comes. Mm-hmm. You already got the tickets. And now the ticket's there. When they get room in that box, which you'll never know, They'll call them and say, oh, yeah, I got a room for your guy. Brancato, pack up. Let's go. You're going to OBCC. Oh, oh, oh. You're watching a movie. Next yeah. thing you know, pack up, and you're going to go sit in a room for 80 days. That's the way it goes. You want to use drugs, that's how it goes. And there's nothing you can do. You can call your lawyer. You can call whoever you want. You're going. So that's why, you know, that kind of stuff, it just, like, shakes you up. It makes you hard because, like, I mean, you're sitting at home, you you cry pretty much, you know, when you're younger, you get what you want, you get your way. It's not happening there, you know? So what's it like for you who, I mean, you're a celebrity, you got everything in the world, you got the money, you got, and you're in the box. You're like, does it, does it hit you? Did you ever have a second in jail where you're like, wow, like you, you were able to finally process everything that had happened? Yeah, it took, you know, once I started getting, you know, the clarity, getting sober and stuff like that. That's when it really started hitting me like, wow, I'm in a lot of trouble. But then I started learning the law. I started working out again. Uh, my first lawyer, Mel Sachs, he passed away, but then I got Joe Tacopina. He was Meek Mills' lawyer, A-Rod's lawyer, but I had him before those guys, right? <laughs> so, but Joe, Joe's, you know, saved my life. It was great. And, uh, got acquitted of all the top charges. I was uh, only found guilty of an attempted burglary in the first degree. So I got 10 years for that. So now I go upstate. Completely, you know, sober, clean and sober. I didn't have my GED at the time. So, you know, um, I went to school. I got my GED right away. And then I enrolled in college, like a, a degree, not a cer- certificate. It was I a real that, yeah. recognized degree. And I studied. I did as much as I can. And I didn't, you know, I used the time wisely. I worked out. I did all the right things. I earned my, my credits, uh, you know, um, earned my 60 credits, got my associate's degree, got a six-month time cut. As a result of that, came home January 1st, 2014. The beginning was tough. 
you know, the beginning was a little tough. People slamming doors and, you know, my manager showed me emails of like casting directors that loved me. And now my manager's trying to set up these, his name's Eric Kritzer, trying to set up these general meetings for people to refamiliarize and myself to refamiliarize and, hey, I'm back. And, you know what I mean? A general meeting like that. And uh, I'm not going to mention who it was, but I said, uh, you know, he says, he told me, he said, Lilo, this is the kind of, this is the kind of emails I get when I sometimes try to pitch you or for a general meeting. The one lady, and she cast me in something really big before, and she was, you know, and Matt, my manager, Eric Kritzer, said, uh, you know, I would love for you to sit down with Lilo. And she said, I would be afraid to be in the same room as him. This is the kind of stuff that I dealt with. But that's nobody else's fault but mine. Yeah, you're involved in something that, you know, someone was killed. So maybe a normal person would be afraid. You're going to kill me? What do you, you know? So this is what I dealt with. But you know what? I never let, me, let it take me off track. I knew the best way to, to, to overcome all this is to become successful again. That's the bottom line. It becomes successful. Did you know in jail, you're, were you thinking about the return and how you're going to make a, a return to, to acting? And It wasn't so much about the acting. I knew I was going to get my freedom again. I didn't really, you know, like the acting was a bonus. If it happens, it happens. But it's like, I, you know, but now I'm just, somebody's dead. Right. You know, I can't be, you know, like. Did I, you feel. I'm just going to get my freedom again. My family's still, you know. So I was like more grateful for just for that. Were you able to to talk to the the police officer's family at at any point in time? Um, you know, not when I was on parole, but I did do a couple things on restorative justice. Um, and I happened to meet coincidentally a relative of the police officer's sister, and and uh, it was like a peace offering. Um, it was like a peace offering, and I said I would love to sit down. I would never do it because when I was on parole, that was like the first stipulation. You cannot go anywhere near these people. I don't try. I don't, nothing. And I respected that. Respect. My curfew was 9 o'clock. If I, I used to come home at 9.02, I would be afraid. I respected that too. I respected all my parole officers. I did what I was supposed to do, and I was not going to let anyone derail me from what I needed to do. So what were we saying? Who we? The police officer's family. Okay, so I um, I said, well, ask her. I would love to. Uh, and she told her she's not ready yet. You know, she's not ready yet. So, I mean, what am I going to do in a situation like that? But I did reach out. And uh, if you're not ready, that's, you know. Do you carry any of the, the shame? Do, do you feel um, or did you ever feel during your time in jail that, um, you know, a sense of I'm ashamed of myself or I'm ashamed that my uh, activities or my tendencies or my addiction um, led to all this madness. Absolutely. How do you cope with that on a daily basis now? I mean, the way you cope with stuff like that is, I mean, the, the best and the most sincere apology is changed behavior. So you changed from what you used to do. Like now, it's like, I can show you my, my last 10 texts, and I guarantee there's at least three or four people that I work with on a daily basis. And I try to share with them my experience and my strength, and you know, hopefully mm -hmm. it's contagious, and then they can learn from what I've been through. And then the next day, they pass it on to the next guy. That's what it's all about. So uh, when I do that kind of... If I was... 
If I was still doing drugs and doing stuff like that, I would feel ashamed. But ashamed is not what I am right now. I'm proud of what I've become. So I'm definitely not ashamed. And uh, listen, I definitely take full responsibility for how my actions and my drug addiction made a contribution. A contribution in the death. Because obviously I was there, you know, and uh, something that I got to live with. But as far as me killing the police officer, people say cop killer. That's like the furthest thing from the truth. Right, right. Okay? That's the furthest thing from the truth. Because it's like, how can I kill you when you shot me first and I was unarmed? I was unarmed and you shot me first. No, and I think anybody who knows the case knows that. Yeah, you know, it's like, I got shot first. Right. I understand I'm on private property. I did not have a gun. I did not do anything, anything for where you, you know, warranted for you to shoot me. Right. But you shot me. I understand you came out, you heard broken glass, and you're trying to protect your neighborhood. And I understand all that. But, uh, you know, let's set the record straight. I did not kill that guy. And I don't feel like I should still have to suffer. Right. I paid my debt to society. I've been in, I've been a, I was a stand-up guy. I did my time like a man. I never told on anyone. And I came home and I've devoted a big portion of my life to helping other people. So I think like people, like still opportunities are taken from me. Oh, Lilo, we're gonna have to cancel the event. Some of the cops found out. Why? One time they told me they made a big deal because I went to this school in Jersey to talk to these kids and they were like, right message, wrong messenger. Who do you want them to learn from? Right. You gotta have them learn from people that have been through it. And the fact that I think that you're ta- like, Writing this bad stuff about me after I didn't get paid for that. I took time out of my day in hopes of maybe even helping one of those kids. Mm-hmm. And the fact that these cops did that, it's absolutely disgusting. Mm. You're, you're right, you're protect and serve. How are you serving anybody right. if, you're, if you're making a big deal about a guy that took time out of his day to like go help and make, make things better, not worse? You're making it worse by making this. Some of these kids probably didn't even know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just ridiculous. So, and so I believe you're what, 13 years sober now? 14. 14. Yes. Because it was 2006. Right. November 18th. You, I, just, I just celebrated 14. Congratulations. Thank you, bro. Last, what was last week? And so you were able to cut cold turkey? Um, that must be hard because, I mean, you were using a lot. No, well, at that point, I didn't really have okay. a habit because okay. I was only getting it when I could right. in jail. The beginning was hard because I didn't, you know, that was kind of how I had to go cold turkey. And... You know, dealing with this situation. Right. You know what I mean? So, right. like, you could be in the best situation in the world, but if you were drawn from heroin, it'll make it really bad. So now you have, like, the worst situation in the world, right. plus that. So now it's like, oh, and you're in pain. And, you're, and your body's probably yeah, going well, crazy, yeah, no? yeah, Yeah, but I'm all shot up, too. And you're all shot up. Yeah, so I'm like, this is all held together by staples. Wow. It was bad, bro. That was, like, 130 pounds. And was there ever, I mean, any temptation from that Point on to even when you were out and it was easier to you know to dabble. I mean, how how do you how do you advise someone who is a recovering? Because I know this is a lot of the work that you do. Who is um, either addicted or a recovering addict? Uh, to tell them don't try it again. Don't you know to stay away. Well, it's it's e- it's easier said than done to well, someone who has an addictive well, personality. You got to you know it's all about the way the brain works. We have a dopamine processing system. And then someone who's an addict, the dopamine is not processed as fast. So there's like almost like a hole in the soul. Right. So like, you know, the kids that are going to become addicts, they eat a lot of chocolate when they're, and they do things to hit that pleasure, that part of the brain where they're lacking. Okay. But 
drugs are not the only way to achieve that, you know, that sensation, but you can do, you know, working out, working out will give you that same, that same feeling. And, you know, helping someone, service, that's why it's so big in recovery, doing service and, and being of service to others. When you go help someone else, well, that makes you feel good about yourself. That has intrinsic value. And that intrinsic value can lead to a dopamine rush. Mm -hmm. This is what you got to do. You got to change your habits from bad ones to good ones. Maybe every morning you go help these people at the, at the, you know, the soup kitchen or you go do whatever. That makes you feel good about yourself, bro. When you're fe Let's face it. When you're feeling good, you're not getting high. Right. It's when you're not feeling good is when you get high. So when you're doing all these things that make you feel good, you won't have to get high. And becoming mindful how you just allow something to enter, you process it, and you let it go, as opposed to like ruminating. Because your mind is, you know, the, 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 it could be the, the cause of all your, you know what I mean? Every, you know what I mean? Just in the way you're looking at things. But when you can become mindful, because listen, you go in recovery, you go to rehab, wherever you go, when you come back out, the world's still the same. Right. You're still gonna have these situations. Nobody's gonna change for you. You're the one that has to change. And the key is to become mindful. To become mindful, to be able to, to be able to be in those situations where you see the drug dealer. Take it in, and you just it's like it's like uh and uh you know there's there's a term it's called urge surfing. What's like you know, like urges are like waves. You know how the wave just starts and then it builds up? Right. It's like an urge, and then it gets all the way up here. The more you feed that urge, it'll keep going. When you don't ruminate and you don't feed it, And it goes away. And this is where the key in becoming mindful is. Mm. Because you'll never extend that wave. That urge will go away. It'll go away. Because the, when the urge first hits you is not when you get high. Sometimes when it lingers and it just doesn't go away. Because in the beginning, you do have that. And you think, like, ah, well, I can't. And then it just doesn't let you go. Because you're ruminating. And you're, you're not using your mind in the right way to be able to combat this right now. But it doesn't mean you're, you can't learn how to do that. That's the key. And, uh, you know. Do you ever resent yourself for um, falling into the addiction in the first place? Not that it was your fault. But do you ever feel like, man, what the fuck? I wish. Of I course. Of course. I wish I would have took things a little slower. Um, I just, and I wish I would have had a little more experience. If I was even a few years older, maybe that wouldn't have happened. What would you have told yourself now? Tell, maybe to, if you tell a little 15, 16-year-old who's starting to, to get all that fame and all that, you know, people noticing you in oh, stardom. Well, ooh. well, I would say is don't stop being a kid your age and don't stop doing age-appropriate things. Don't lose that because the grass is not greener on the other side, right. okay? Yes, you have this opportunity and it's what it is. It's work. So go do the work, get paid for it, but don't get stuck on all the other stuff around it. The parties, the this, the that. That's going to be your downfall. That's going to ruin you. Stay, be a kid. Don't lose. Do not let your education go. Other than your health, your education is probably the second best investment in, in life. You can never go wrong. But your health, if you don't have good health, right. you can't learn. Or you could learn, but you're not going to enjoy what you learn and the fruits of what you, you know what I mean? Health is number one. But make sure you stick with your education and, and don't, don't grow up too fast. That's what I did. Got to the point I was in my like, late teens. It's like, what do I do now? What do you do now? Right. You don't see that. Like, I never went to my prom. 
because I was, you know what I mean? It's like a lot of these things, like I wish I could have done, but I thought I was like, you know, hot shit back then. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, but no, no, that's where I went wrong. I grew up too fast. I let it get to my head. I made, as Charles Palminteri said best, I made monumentally bad choices and they led to a disaster and someone lost their life. Forget it was a cop, it was another human being is not here. Other no. than other than obviously someone losing their life, do you have any other regrets? In that situation or in general? In general. I mean, I regret, you know, I could have stayed a little closer to Robert De Niro. But my 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 thoughts were like this guy's probably got so many people that bother him on a daily basis that maybe I shouldn't do that and maybe I should be one of the guys that doesn't do that. But now that I look back in hindsight, I said, you know what, I really... Because he would have probably... He's got a son my age. Hmm. You know what I mean? So it was like... And, and I, I looked up to him, so I know what he would have said I would have listened to because I respect him. I look up to him. Same thing with my dad. I looked up and respect him too. But this is just another person with another person's... And I heard that you had... Uh... Met, or you had seen him at, I think it was a reunion uh, back in 2017. It wasn't a reunion. They were shooting The uh, the Irishman. Okay, yeah, it was that. And But you had seen Robert De Niro after the whole prison Oh, and yeah, 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 yeah. And you had a brief conversation, correct? Yeah, like two minutes. Was there, I mean, when you see some of these people that you, from that past life that of acting or the Robert De Niro's of the world, which is doesn't happen every day, did you feel, like, ashamed? Did you feel, I mean, what's, that must be very different, you know, especially you hadn't seen him in 15 years. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was very different. So much had happened, but he was still, you know, beautiful guy, yeah. you know, came up. He was, you know, he asked me like real sincerely, you okay? You okay? You know, asked about my family and uh, it's great. You know, it was, uh, and I, I do regret not uh, keeping as much in touch as I should have. Now, so where do you go from here? Um, You know, when you're 44 and... A big, a crazy life, I guess, up until this point. But you're still young, and you're healthy, and you know you look good. You're in shape. Um, is it? I mean, I know you've done, acted in a bunch of different things uh, since you got out of jail. Where do you go from here? What do you What do you hope the next five, ten years look like? Well, you know, like I said, I got the, a film that I produced. It's called The Fury. My partner Victor Rios, okay. he directed it. It's a vigilante movie. It's awesome. It's not your run of the mill. Where uh, can people watch it? Well, it's not out yet. Okay, we're not we're out. still finishing the music. Okay. It's not your run-of-the-mill independent film. It looks like a huge studio film. It's awesome. Um, then I have a film called Made in Mexico, Mario Lopez produced. I okay. play like a Mexican cartel guy. My friend Tootie Rinks, Rodney Rinks, Tootie we call him. He was the writer, uh, director. Um, it's like a comedy, though. It's pretty cool because the guy owes the guy money. Well, he's like, he can't pay him. Then they kidnap this writer, the, the, the cartel guy. And he tells me, well, then you're going to do the movie here about my life with my guys. You got guys holding up like like these metal things, his guys, like, for, you know, for the bounce, for the light. Mm-hmm. They the phone. It's just funny. It's really, it's, uh, it's uh, the relationship that we had in the film was kind of like Robert De Niro and Billy Crystal in Analyze This. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy was scary, but he had that, you know, that, that real, that side to him where you only saw when he was with this guy right. because he could kind of like let his guard down. And he can find him. It's really, it's really was well written. It was good. And then I have a film, a short film called uh, I'm on Fire. Um, Michael Spitzia, uh, David Stern, they wrote it. Michael directed it. It's with Jamie Lynn Sigler. Okay. Girl from the Surprise, she plays my wife. Um, I play an abusive dad. It takes place in the 80s. It's really 
really good. Like, really good. Like, I can almost say, like, Academy Award level. Wow. Yeah, that good. Wow. When, yeah. when is that going to come out? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. This shit. Yeah. Um, to wrap things up, do you ever think about... Um, can I also mention one thing? Go. Remember, I was mentioning the director of public relations. I just want to also mention, you know, more life recovery. Mm-hmm. We're an intensive outpatient in New Jersey. Um, you know, great bunch of people there. My boy Stevie Barone, who, you know, who took me in and gave me the opportunity. Joe Coyle, guys like that, Kenny, Casey. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so blessed mm-hmm. to have been given this opportunity because when you, you know, like, it's also a job, but you stay plugged in. Right. You stay where you're supposed to be. This you got to stay in this world. You got to stay helping people because that keeps you safe. Because mm-hmm. now it's like, oh, this kid's depending on me. He's really looking up to me. You can't fail because then you fail him too. Right. So now it's like hey, that extra layer of strength. So it's a real blessing. Uh, I love working there. I love everyone there. And uh, you know, I mean, this is you know, addiction's very very serious. You could be here today, gone tomorrow. And yes, it can happen to you. Can happen to anyone, so don't think it can't. Um, and listen, if anyone out there that's watching this, it's either them or know someone that is sick and struggling and needs help. Don't even waste not even another half a second. Get the help that you need. Seriously, if you if you if you're a mother or a father, you know, keep your kid off drugs if you want to save the kid's life. Just like Carol O'Connor said, he said those exact words. Keep your kid off drugs if you want to save that kid's life. Because if he's going to stay on drugs, he's probably going to die or end up in prison. So this is, you know, the, the urgency is, you know, get, get the help. And finally, do you, uh, do you ever think about how you hope to, to be remembered or, you know, I want to a be legacy? Re- yeah, I want to be remembered as a guy, you know, who's, uh, you know, came up really fast and did some great things, but then went down really fast and but showed that uh, second chances are real. And that someone can turn their lives around. And that it's not, it doesn't matter how you start the race, it's how you finish. Beautiful. And people can follow you on Instagram at Lilo underscore Brancato. Yes. L I L L O L I L L O underscore Brancato. B R A N C A T O. Beautiful. Lilo, it was a, a pleasure um, to have you on. And I just, I, I uh, mean, I, I, I'll shake your hand. I, I don't care. And I, don't I, and I, you know, I, I mean, what a life, obviously, but also I think it's beautiful to see someone um, turn their life around and help others. And I think that ultimately that's that's what the message is about. I know that's what your social media is about. And I know that, um, you know, it's uh, it's beautiful to see people do that. And uh, thank you for, for, for doing that for people. Thank you, bro. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you.